This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton Section 1 Introduction, Part 2 But this notion of a sneer is not admissible. Dickens was far too frank and generous a writer to employ such an elaborate plot of silence. His satire was always intended to attack, never to entrap. Moreover, he was far too vain a man not to wish the crowd to see all his jokes. Vanity is more divine than pride, because it is more democratic than pride. Third, and most important, Dickens was a good liberal, and would have been horrified at the notion of making so venomous a vendetta against one race or creed. Nevertheless, the fact is there, as I say, if only as a curiosity of literature. I defy any man to read through our mutual friend, after hearing this suggestion, and to get out of his head the conviction that Lamley is the wrong kind of Jew. The explanation lies, I think, in this, that Dickens was so wonderfully sensitive to that change that has come over our society, that he noticed the type of the oriental and cosmopolitan financier without even knowing that it was oriental or cosmopolitan. He had, in fact, fallen a victim to a very simple fallacy affecting this problem. Somebody said, with great wit and truth, that treason cannot prosper, because when it prospers it cannot be called treason. The same argument soothed all possible anti-Semitism in men like Dickens. Jews cannot be sneaks and snobs, because when they are sneaks and snobs, they do not admit that they are Jews. I have taken this case of the growth of the cosmopolitan financier because it is not so stale in discussion as its parallel, the growth of socialism. But as regards Dickens, the same criticism applies to both. Dickens knew that socialism was coming, though he did not know its name. Similarly, Dickens knew that the South African millionaire was coming, though he did not know the millionaire's name. Nobody does. He was not a type of mind to disentangle either the abstract truths touching the socialist, nor the high personal truth about the millionaire. He was a man of impressions. He has never been equaled in the art of conveying what a man looks like at first sight, and he simply felt the two things as atmospheric facts. He felt that the mercantile power was oppressive, past all bearing by Christian men and he felt that this power was no longer wholly in the hands even of heavy English merchants like Podsnap. It was largely in the hands of a feverish and unfamiliar type like Lamley and Veneering. The fact that he felt these things is almost more impressive because he did not understand them. Now for this reason Dickens must definitely be considered in the light of the changes which his soul foresaw. Thackeray has become classical, but Dickens has done more. He has remained modern. The grand retrospective spirit of Thackeray is by its nature attached to places and times. He belongs to Queen Victoria as much as Addison belongs to Queen Anne. And it is not only Queen Anne who is dead, 
but Dickens, in a dark, prophetic kind of way, belongs to the developments. He belongs to the times, since his death, when hard times grew harder, and when Veneering became not only a member of Parliament, but a cabinet minister. The times when the very soul and spirit of Fledgeby carried war into Africa. Dickens can be criticized as a contemporary of Bernard Shaw, or Anatole France, or C. F. G. Masterman. In talking of him, one need no longer talk merely of the Manchester School, or Puseyism, or the Charge of the Light Brigade. His name comes to the tongue when we are talking of Christian Socialists, or Mr. Roosevelt, or County Council Steamboats, or Guilds of Play. He can be considered under new lights, some larger and some meaner than his own, and it is a very rough effort so to consider him, which is the excuse of these pages. Of the essays in this book, I desire to say as little as possible. I will discuss any other subject in preference with a readiness which reaches to avidity. But I may very curtly apply the explanation used above to the cases of two or three of them. Thus, in the article on David Copperfield, I have done far less than justice to that fine book, considered in its relation to eternal literature. But I have dwelt at some length upon a particular element in it which has grown enormous in England after Dickens' death. Thus again, in introducing sketches by Bowes, I have felt chiefly that I am introducing them to a new generation, insufficiently in sympathy with such palpable and unsophisticated fun. A board school education, evolved since Dickens' day, has given to our people a queer and inadequate sort of refinement, one which prevents them from enjoying the raw jests of the sketches by Bowes, but leaves them easily open to that slight but poisonous sentimentalism which I note amid all the merits of David Copperfield. In the same way I shall speak of Little Dorrit, with reference to a school of pessimistic fiction which did not exist when it was written, of hard times in the light of the most modern crises of economics, and of the child's history of England in the light of the most matured authority of history. In short, these criticisms are an intrinsically ephemeral comment from one generation upon work that will delight many more. Dickens was a very great man, and there are many ways of testing and stating the fact. But one permissible way is to say this, that he was an ignorant man, ill-read in the past, and often confused about the present. Yet he remains great and true, and even essentially reliable, if we suppose him to have known not only all that went before his lifetime, but also all that was to come after. From this vanishing of the Victorian compromise, I might say the Victorian illusion, there begins to emerge a menacing and even monstrous thing. We may begin again to behold the English people. If that strange dawn ever comes, it will be the final vindication of Dickens. It will be proved that he is hardly even a caricaturist, that he is something very like a realist. Those comic monstrosities which the critics found incredible will be found to be the immense majority of the citizens of this country. We shall find that Sweetlepipe cuts our hair and Pumblechook sells our cereals. 
that Sam Weller blacks our boots and Tony Weller drives our omnibus. For the exaggerated notion of the exaggerations of Dickens, as was admirably pointed out by my old friend and enemy, Mr. Blatchford, in a clarion review, is very largely due to our mixing with only one social class whose conventions are very strict and to whose affections we are accustomed. In cabmen, in cobblers, in charwomen, individuality is often pushed to the edge of insanity. But as long as the Thackerayan platform of gentility stood firm, all this was, comparatively speaking, concealed. For the English of all nations have the most uniform upper class and the most varied democracy. In France it is the peasants who are solid to uniformity. It is the marquises who are a little mad. But in England, while good form restrains and levels the universities and the army, the poor people are the most motley and amusing creatures in the world, full of humorous affections and prejudices and twists of irony. Frenchmen tend to be alike because they are all soldiers, Prussians because they are all something else, probably policemen. Even Americans are all something, though it is not easy to say what it is. It goes with hawk-like eyes and in irrational eagerness. Perhaps it is savages. But two English cabmen will be as grotesquely different as Mr. Weller and Mr. Wegg. Nor is it true to say that I see this variety because it is in my own people. For I do not see the same degree of variety in my own class, or in the class above it. There is more superficial resemblance between two Kensington doctors or two Highland dukes. No, the democracy is really composed of Dickens' characters, for the simple reason that Dickens was himself one of the democracy. There remains one thing to be added to this attempt to exhibit Dickens in the growing and changing lights of our time. God forbid that anyone, especially any Dickensian, should dilute or discourage the great efforts toward social improvement. But I wish that social reformers would more often remember that they are imposing their rules not on dots and numbers, but on Bob Sawyer and Tom Lincolnwater, on Mrs. Lirriper and Dr. Marigold. I wish Mr. Sidney Webb would shut his eyes until he sees Sam Weller. A great many circumstances have led to the neglect in literature of these exuberant types, which do actually exist in the ruder classes of society. Perhaps the principal cause is that since Dickens' time, the study of the poor has ceased to be an art and become a sort of sham science. Dickens took the poor individually. All modern writing tends to take them collectively. It is said that the modern realist produces a photograph rather than a picture, but this is an inadequate objection. The real trouble with the realist is not that he produces a photograph, but that he produces a composite photograph. It is like all composite photographs, blurred, like all composite photographs, hideous, and like all composite photographs, unlike anything or anybody. The new sociological novels, which attempt to describe the abstract type of the working classes, sin in practice against the first canon of literature. True, when all others are subject to exception, literature must always be pointing out of what is interesting in life but these books are duller than the life they represent. Even supposing that Dickens did exaggerate the greed to which one man differs from another, that was at least an exaggeration upon the side of literature. 
it was better than a mere attempt to reduce what is actually vivid and unmistakable to what is in comparison colourless or unnoticeable. Even the creditable and necessary efforts of our time in certain matters of social reform have discouraged the old distinctive Dickens treatment. People are so anxious to do something for the poor man that they have a sort of subconscious desire to think there is only one kind of man to do it for. Thus, while the old accounts were sometimes too steep and crazy, the new became too sweeping and flat. People write about the problem of drink, for instance, as if it were one problem. Dickens could have told them that there is the abyss between heaven and hell, between the incongruous excesses of Mr. Pickwick and the fatalistic soaking of Mr. Wickfield. He could have shown that there was nothing in common between the brandy and water of Bob Sawyer and the rum and water of Mr. Stiggins. People talk of imprudent marriages among the poor, as if it were all one question. Dickens could have told him that it is one thing to marry without much money, like Stephen Blackpool, and quite another to marry without the smallest intention of ever trying to get any, like Harold Skimpole. People talk about husbands in the working classes being kind or brutal to their wives, as if that was the one permanent problem, and no other possibility need to be considered. Dickens could have told them that there was the case, the by no means uncommon case, of the husband of Mrs. Gargery, as well as of the wife of Mr. Quillip. In short, Dickens saw the problem of the poor not as dead and definite business, but as a living and very complex one. In some ways he would be called much more conservative than the modern sociologists, in some ways much more revolutionary. End of the introduction, part two. End of section one.